So this week, the staff had a, a Christmas party together on Tuesday, and one of the things we did was have a gift exchange, you know, where you give gifts and then you can potentially take a gift from someone. And I thought I'd give you a couple highlights. For example, Tori, uh, I don't know what was happening there because she would go pick something and it was awesome and someone would take it from her. And then someone, so she went and picked something else and it was awesome. It was a very cool thing and someone would take it. She ended up with the cassettes and uh, <laughs> was not you know, feeling really, so share, you know, give some love to, to her during the week. You know, uh, let Tori know that she is loved. And uh, others, you know, uh, got some gifts that they were found quite satisfying. For example, this is Taylor. And uh, <laughs> most, if not all, gifts have value that is determined by an exchange. You know, what would you trade for this? In most cases, we exchange money for a gift. We're willing to go to, my, one of my favorites is Costco, and I uh, love Costco, and I will give them money, and they will give me cool stuff. And if I don't like the cool stuff, I can bring it back at any time, and, and they'll give you back some money. So we just keep kind of trading back and forth. It's awesome. In some cases, the value of a gift, however, is measured by the time or the effort or the sacrifice that we're willing to incur in order to secure the gift for someone. Uh, it's, it's not about the money. The cost of a gift does not guarantee that the gift will be valued by the recipient. You know, you can, you can spend a lot uh, of money or put a lot of effort and time into a gift and give it to someone and they go, huh. <laughs> But the cost does reveal the value in which the giver holds the recipient. If I pour tremendous time and energy into securing a gift for someone, that tells you what I think of that person. Last week, we looked at the overall value of the grace gift that Jesus has placed at the foot of the cross for each person in this room. And we observe that through his poverty, we become rich. So we acknowledge that whatever's in this gift, and we're going to open it on Christmas Eve, and I'm going to show you more of what's in that gift. But whatever's in that gift, we through his poverty become rich. That's, that's an amazing gift. What I'd like to do this morning is actually do an inventory of what the cost was. What was Jesus willing to give up in order to secure this gift for us? And this is going to tell us what he values. You're, you're going to see that this was an exquisitely expensive gift. It's going to tell us about what's important to him. And I hope by the time that we're done, you come away seeing what this gift that eventually goes to the foot of the cross is about. So in order to understand the, the cost of this gift, I want to share with you eight what I'm going to call exchanges. It's kind of like a gift exchange except uh, profoundly greater. These are eight exchanges that are identified in the New Testament that Jesus made in order to purchase, for, purchase a certain gift. 
a gift that, as I mentioned, will open on Christmas Eve. I want, to act, I want you to actually see what is in this gift that Jesus has given us. So I will give you a series of eight exchanges. Jesus traded admiration for hatred. This is from John 15, 18. It says, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. Jesus was admired, worshipped, and decided, I'm going to go to a place where I will be hated. Which means I conclude this, whatever it is that Jesus is procuring, it is worth being hated by men. Now think about that for yourself. Would I be willing to give someone a gift if what it cost was the animosity, the hatred of all men? Exchange number two, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus traded glory for humiliation. Whatever it is Jesus is procuring, it is worth being humiliated even unto death. He's willing to die in order to procure a gift. Exchange number three, Jesus did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. Jesus traded supremacy for servitude. He was calling the shots. And instead he said, I will be a bondservant. Whatever it is Jesus is procuring, it is worth becoming a slave. He's embracing slavery as a way to procure a certain gift. Exchange number four from Luke. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Jesus traded sovereignty for dependency. He came to this earth not as a conqueror. Now that will happen. He's going to come riding a horse. And it will be as the conqueror. But to secure this gift... He came as someone who was entirely dependent upon a mom and a dad. Whatever it is Jesus is procuring for us, it is worth living in a world where he is dependent on others. Exchange number five, we looked at this last, uh, last Sunday. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Jesus traded riches for poverty. Whatever it is Jesus is procuring, it is worth exchanging a life defined by unbelievable wealth to living in poverty. You know, I have been to some places where the living conditions, you know, different parts of the world where the living conditions are appalling. But the difference between how I live here and those conditions doesn't come close to the gulf between heaven and where Jesus came and he was willing to trade it all and not go for a one-week camping trip he came to live his life and die in conditions that were so unlike heaven whatever it is that Jesus is procuring it is worth exchanging a life defined by unbelievable wealth 
the living in poverty. Exchange number six, after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. Jesus traded fullness for hunger. I'm reasonably confident that no one in this room, certainly I can say this of myself, has ever fasted for 40 days because I want something else so badly. Jesus did. Whatever it is that Jesus is procuring, it is worth becoming ravenously hungry and going without food. Exchange number seven, they said to him, this is John 8, 41, we were not born of fornication. Basically, they're slandering him and saying that you're an illegitimate son. Jesus traded blamelessness for scandalousness. Whatever it is that Jesus is procuring for us, it is worth having his reputation savaged. Exchange number eight. This is the most potent one. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It says Jesus cried out with a loud voice. In, in the original, he says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Why have you left me, God? Jesus traded God's anointing for God's wrath. Whatever it is Jesus is procuring, it is worth being judged by God for someone else's sin, no less. You would want to ask, wouldn't you? You would want to say to Jesus, was it worth it? Was giving up all of this worth it? We read in Hebrews 12 too, this stunning passage. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The prospect of surpassing joy propelled Jesus forward, even though he made all eight of these exchanges. He was able to say, it will be worth it. He sees that there is something coming that is going to fill him with joy, where he says, it is worth all of these costs. I gladly embrace it. One of the things I did this week that uh, for personal devotion for a couple days was I read through the book of Matthew to identify all of the ways in, pe in which people responded to Jesus. And what I want you to do is, I'm, and I'm going to read a number of these phrases that tell us how people responded to Jesus. I want to, um, you to imagine yourself as the recipient of these reactions. And ask yourself the question, if there was something I was trying to do, would it be worth it? Now, it is true that there were a number of positives. Uh, large crowds followed him. They were amazed at his teaching. Uh, the crowds were amazed. Those are some statements. But there's an awful lot of negatives. Listen to these. This is how people were responding to Jesus. And I've just picked, you know, I don't know, a dozen or a dozen and a half, but there's many more. This fellow blasphemes. They were laughing at him, 9-4. He casts out the demons by the ruler of demons. In other words, he's in league with the devil. 
three times they were offended by him. You know, if he lived today, there would have been all kind of negative, I am so offended by what you have said. People were asking questions for the purpose of entrapping him. Let's ask him questions so that we can maneuver him into saying something where we can trap him. They were conspiring to destroy him, 1214. They were seeking to seize him, 2146. They plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. There was malice. They said, he deserves death. That's the people. They spat in his face. They beat him with their fists and others slapped him. From his friends, no less. One thought he was a friend. Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him. Betrayed by one from his inner circle. And then the one whom he loves. That one says of him, I do not know the man. Now, if I hope you're able to visualize, if that were you, if that was your life, would you be saying, that, this is so worth it? I mean, how would you react? I'm reminded of a story. This is a story about uh, from my mom before I was born. Uh, this was after the Second World War, and she and my dad were living in San Francisco, and she uh, was working in a, one of these kind of diners where there was a short order cook. And what that meant is that you didn't write down things on a menu. You would go to a table, and they would say, you know, we'd like some chili. And then she would say, chili on two or whatever, and the chef would do whatever he's going to do to prepare the chili. But if he wasn't prepared to make it in that moment, he would say, hold the chili. So there was a really busy day in the restaurant, and my mom was trying to keep up with all these things that people are saying and wanting. And she's talking to the chef, and the chef, you know, she went through several interchanges where she said, chili on two, hold the chili. Okay, I got to keep that in my brain, and then I'm going here and here, and what the... Chili on two, hold the chili. <laughs> Eventually, she took off her apron, threw it on the ground, and she said, you hold the chili, and left. And that's actually become a slogan in our family. Whenever someone says, you hold the chili, that means we're kind of there. I cannot imagine doing what Jesus did without at some point saying, you hold the chili. I cannot imagine Jesus not doing something like Han Solo did when he said, no reward is worth this. And yet for Jesus, it was. For Jesus, all of this incredible cost was worth it. For Jesus, the extreme cost does not compare to a future joy. And it says in that passage, Hebrews 12 too, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him. All the while that Jesus is going through this, making these exchanges, being slandered, hated, plotted against, in his, and going then to the cross where he experiences the wrath of God that you and I deserve. 
sees something. He sees something in the future. And he's perhaps not outside, but he's smiling inside, knowing this will be worth it. What joy is he talking about? You know, what's he referring to? Oh, it's actually right in this passage, but you might not see it. He says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. And I want to help you understand what that looks like, okay? So Jesus, when he came to our planet, he came preparing to give us a gift. And he walked from the manger to the cross where he placed that gift. And he accomplished everything that was necessary for that gift to be there at the foot of the cross and available for you and for me. There's only one problem. How do you open that gift? And this is where the phrase in this passage helps us understand something. It says Jesus is the author and perfecter of faith. What does that mean? Uh, Now these are some challenging words because one of them, uh, this is the only place known where this word is used. It's not used anywhere else in the Bible and it's not used in secular Greek. Uh, One of the other words, uh, the author word, is actually used three other places, so we can get a handle on that. Think of author as inventor. Jesus, and it doesn't say the the author of our faith, it says the author of faith, the inventor of faith. Jesus actually invented something called faith. It is a means by which you can believe something and benefit from that something that you believe. Now, that doesn't work. For example, if you said, you know, I have a belief that Jim is going to give me a million dollars. You are using faith. Unfortunately, you're using faith in an imperfect object. I don't have that to give you. I can give you something much greater, which is the knowledge of how to be saved. But Jesus was the perfecter of faith, too. In other words, what he did is actually created a way for faith to work, for faith to be like a pathway so that someone can actually, by faith, open this gift and realize all the benefit of it. That is accomplished through faith that has been perfected. All the bugs have been worked out of it. It's a faith that works And by that means, we are able to actually open this gift. And so what Jesus was doing when he went to the cross is he was actually taking a gift there and completing the invention and perfecting of faith so that anyone who wants to can use faith and actually open that gift and enjoy the benefit of it. That's what this passage is telling us. While Jesus' opponents seemed to be winning, he was successfully creating a means by which sinners can be saved by faith. The gift was delivered. Remember we saw that when we talked about the darkened circle? The gift has been delivered. 
It's at the foot of the cross. It's there for everyone who wants it. And he invented a thing called faith and made faith effective such that we can use that as a means to open the gift. The gift is there. It's been delivered. And faith is what opens it. Jesus' surpassing delight is in the knowledge that there are going to be people who will come to the foot of the cross, and I'm speaking metaphorically, who will come to the foot of the cross and by faith will open this gift. And inside that gift is something profound. And Jesus sees that and it fills him with joy. You can't believe how good this is. Now again, I told you I'm going to open it on Christmas Eve, but I want to give you a little bit of a sneak preview of what is in that gift and why Jesus is so animated by the prospect of what is before him. Here's a little gift description, all right? See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. Now, as Jesus has prepared and done everything necessary, he's put inside this gift the capacity to become a child of God. And he's the inventor and perfecter of faith, which is a way for us to actually open this gift and benefit from it. In other words, what Jesus is seeing is it is now possible for people in this room, in this broken world, to open a gift by faith by which they can become children of God that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. Inside that gift is a new identity. Child of God. And it won't be some fake, you know, label thing. It will be real. We will be like him. You'll actually look at us and you'll see a likeness to father and his children. That's what's in the gift. And faith is the means by which you can actually open the gift and enjoy all the benefit of it. And the author and perfecter of faith accomplished that when he took the gift from the manger to the cross, and despite all the stuff that was thrown at him, what he saw was you and me in the presence of Father, and we belong there because we are his children. And Jesus says, so worth it. The gift which Jesus has invented and perfected is the only means by which we can actually dwell in God's presence as his children. But the joy of this prospect is what is driving Jesus. And now here's the thing I want to say that is if you only take away one thing from the sermon, this is it. Okay, here it is. This is a commentary on our worth. This exchange was made for one reason. Jesus made this exchange of all these horrible things. Walk this path. Because he believes, it's hard for me to even say this because it's so unbelievable. He's saying this to me. 
Jim, you are worth it. He's saying this to you. Church, you are worth it. I am willing to do all these things. And I am giving you a glimpse of the worth of you because of all the things I'm willing to incur as the costs to make this gift available to you and to give you a means by which to actually open it and enjoy it. Inexplicable behavior can be explained by love in the extreme. And that's what's going on here. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, that we might receive adoption as sons. We're going to be the sons and daughters of God. We are the sons and daughters of God. If we have come to the foot of the cross by faith and opened the gift that was secured for us at extreme cost because Jesus believes you're worth it. The prospect of you and me in his presence for all eternity animates him such that he is willing to go through all of this. And it's a commentary on our worth. By his willingness to yield up every heavenly prerogative, Jesus has ascribed inestimable value to all those whom he seeks. Which leads me to this passage. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he also with him free, not freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. This is the ultimate remedy against discouragement and recrimination. You know, a few churches ago, I was in a church where I met so many people. And this was a, a, a church in a community where uh, the high school mascot was the demon. You know, it was called the home of the demons. And there were people in the congregation who would actually hear the voice of recrimination. I sometimes wonder about the extent to which some of that was animated by the enemy and the enemy would whisper or the voice that they would hear is who are you to think you can do that you can't do that God thinks you're worth it Jesus thinks you're worth it that's the truth if Jesus had it to do over again he would and the joy-filled prospect of you in his presence shouts, worth it. Now, remember what I said in the early part of the message. I said that the gift, the cost of a gift, tells you about the value that the giver attaches to the recipient. It's not a guarantee that it will be valued by the recipient. In other words, for every person on this planet, there is a gift at the foot of the cross with their name on it. Further, Jesus has created the faith pathway by which we can access the gift, we can open it, and we can claim it. But not all men do. 
they would say, yeah, that's great, whatever it is he did, but I want to live my life on my terms. I want to do it my way. The benefit of the gift only goes to those who by using faith that Jesus invented and perfected, go and they open that gift. And then all the benefit of that gift is theirs to claim. So the only question is, have you unwrapped that gift? How do I do that? Well, it's possible by faith. And before I close the message, I will give any in this room an opportunity who have never opened that gift to do so. But I want to talk to you now, those who have opened the gift. You would say, I have done that. Then I want you to hear this loud and clear Every person around you, every person you come in contact with, every person who disappoints you, every person who does wrong by you is someone of whom Jesus would say they are worth it. Meaning, I need to do everything in my power to help that person understand there's a gift with their name on it and they can open it by faith. And I don't write them off. I don't say, you hold the chili. I instead say, this is someone who is precious and valuable to the Lord, and therefore is precious and valuable to me. And I will honor them as someone for whom Jesus was willing to go through all this stuff because he wants them in his presence. There are people among whom you live and move, even this week, who have never opened the gift. Will you love them the way Jesus loves them and tell them that there is a gift with their name on it? Will you not write them off? Will you not say, I'm done with this? That's who we are. That's what it means to be men and women who have opened the gift by faith and realize I am precious to him and so is every person on this planet. He was willing to do all this because he wants every person on this planet to say yes and to be with him for all eternity. You are worth it. The people around you are worth it. Let's pray. Perhaps you have never opened the gift, and I, I want to give you an opportunity to do so. It's very simple to do. Faith is simply believing what God has said. And what God has said is the truth, which is you can, by faith, name Jesus as your Savior, as the one who paid for your sins, and I will make you my child. You can do that by praying a prayer that's as simple as this. Dear God, I am a sinner who deserves eternal separation from you. But I believe it is true. Jesus died for me and took my place. And so I am naming him as my Savior. And I am opening the gift of who I am in Christ right now by faith and following him for the rest of my days. Father, for everyone else in this room, I'm pleading that you would help us to recognize the voice 
of self-recrimination and the voice of the enemy who wants to teach us and influence us that we are not worth it. And I pray instead that we would do just what the author of Hebrews said, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. That's a commentary on who we are and what we are worth. May we be a people who are filled, who are propelled by joy at what you have told us about how you view us. May we live as a people on fire for you, madly in love with you, and changing our world for the cause of Christ because we know who we are in him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.